Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Fall is in the air. Uh, I've seen pumpkins. My wife brought home a pumpkin from the farm across the road just uh, the other day. Yesterday, I had my first fresh Cortland. I really like Cortland. I know some people might not prefer those, but those are one of my favorites. Saw turkeys on the way in again. And uh, it's beautiful out. I even smelled a wood stove going yesterday. And uh, it kind of shocked me, but I guess... I guess people that like to burn, which I would be one of them too, can't wait to get those fires going. But uh, it is a beautiful time of year. It's a joy to be with you. Um, good to see you this morning, and thank you for this opportunity. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Psalms have often been beloved by the people of God, and uh, I just know that. Um, I, I just grow to treasure them and, and love them more and more, as I'm sure you are uh, as well experiencing that. So please turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. I call this message an outline of the ages, an outline of the ages. And we'll look at that in a little bit. But before we do that, I do want to open up in a word of prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for your holy son. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that dwells within all who believe, is working here even this morning. We pray that you would work in our hearts. Help us to see your truth, convict and challenge, encourage, comfort. We would ask, Father, that you would work through your word and through your spirit. Thank you for the opportunity to come to you in the name of your son. We pray, Father, that we would have a greater perspective of who you are and what you're doing in the world as a result of studying this psalm a greater perspective of your son, and uh, may it give us hope uh, for time to come. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the uh, times uh, are are interesting. Uh, some of the conversations I'm having to have with my children, I never really expected to be having. And uh, they are good because we can infuse scripture in that. That's a good opportunity. But uh, it is alarming, and uh, I go and look, and uh, I was kind of even more alarmed by this, that I looked up the top headlines for the year of 2023, and it was not what I expected. I expected things on uh, some of the perversion going on in the schools, the teaching. Um, there's all sorts of immorality going on in leadership throughout the world, especially even in our country. And instead, I'm finding lots of things about financial instability, about AI, and some of the things that are so alarming to me, so frustrating, the morality, the decline of morality in our country, uh, just the lack of interest in spiritual things, people don't seem to really be that concerned about. And I'm sure you're with me and seeing these things, and it just blows your mind to see that 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 things are changing so quickly and it, it seems like right is being tossed to the side and it's sad and if we're honest sometimes we, we we've been to question uh who's in control here and we know from the scriptures that god is in control psalm 2 is a beautiful psalm that i think is going to encourage us today it's a messianic psalm 
It's a psalm that points us to the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. And the whole Bible's center message really focuses on Jesus Christ. It's pointing towards Jesus Christ. And really, that's the point of this psalm. It points us to the anointed one and uh, is an interaction between uh, the, 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 the psalmist himself, David, and as well as uh, talking of, of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and his anointed one, and has a challenge for all of us. Psalm 425 attributes it back to David, and there's a close tie between these two psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And it's interesting, and you ought to put some thought into, why did God include these psalms as the first two psalms of the book of Psalms? Both have interaction between uh, the righteous and the wicked, and the antagonism between that. But this psalm, a messianic psalm that, that, that promises and speaks of the anointed one, Jesus, um, to come, I believe is placed here at the beginning of Psalms for a reason. And what a beautiful psalm it is. Hebrew poetry is a beautiful thing. And I know I've talked to you about this before in, in years past when I visited. But Hebrew poetry is not so much the rhyming of words, but the rhyming of ideas. They use parallelism. So they'll put something up here for you to think about and then put something next to it for you to compare. Sometimes it's synonymous, meaning that it's similar. Sometimes uh, they use something like uh, antithetical parallelism, where they will put something up here, and then for you to think about it, it'll contrast it with something else. So often uh, wisdom. So for instance, a soft answer turneth away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And so the poetry and the literature that is taking place is much a rhyme of ideas and thoughts. And it actually is very beautiful. And being God-inspired, it's worthy of great depths, uh, or great study. And, and you can go really into the deeps of it. And it just continues to give wonderful truths. Well, in the psalm we look at today, Psalm 2, you're going to see a lot of synonymous parallelism. And then what we call synthetic, where it builds upon the previous idea. So they'll throw out an idea and then build upon it and build upon it. We won't be able to analyze all this for sake of time, but I'm at least going to throw it out to you. And hopefully in your own time, as you study this, you can continue to make comparisons of this beauty. And uh, really, it, help, it really brings to life, to color uh, what we're studying. There's also some metaphor which is using pictures to communicate things. And simile is when you do that with uh, using like or as. There's anthropomorphisms where they're going to use things uh, that are very human to describe God. And uh, one of the things that really stands out to me that I want to spend just a moment with you is a chiastic structure. Isn't that, that sounds kind of, but it's really important. This is called a chiastic uh, a psalm. And uh, a chiastic structure is, is basically this idea that in outline form, it would look like this. A1, B1, C1, C2, B2, A2. And you see how it comes down and it focals, uh, focuses in on this, this special point. And the special point of this psalm, this is a chiastic uh, structured psalm, is right there in verse 6 and verse 7. That's the pin the, or the point. It, I like to think of it as a spear point. It's leading to that focus, and then it's going to come back 
explain to you. So just to, before we read the whole psalm, and, and you'll see some of these things come out as we read it. But notice in verse 2, 1 through 3, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Okay, now let's go to the very end. Verse 12, sorry, verse 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. You see how he's bringing back in kings and rulers. And if you if you follow this, the first one is a question of their futility. In the end, it's a challenge for them to, to act correctly towards the king. Now, I have to explain some of this, but we're going to we'll go more in depth in it. But that's what's happening is it's going into this focal point that you're going to see in verse six and seven is the point of the spear. It's the point, the, the, the main point, and that's going to back off again. And it's really a beautiful thing. Uh, and as you study more Psalms and, and more actually Hebrew poetry, it really uh, often comes out. And uh, you're going to see that. And that's going to give us the focal point right there in 6 and 7. This, this poem or psalm it has four sections, four uh, strophes. And uh, you see three verses for each one. So how many verses are in Psalm 2? There's 12, and so there's three verses for each one. If I were to teach this as a lesson, I would have broken up each one and done that. But I think that those two middle ones really are focusing in on a certain point. So I've included this as three points. And, and as we look at this, I think the great challenge is this. God wants you to recognize the victor of the ages. The one who wins. The one who's in control. The one who's in charge. The one who defeats all foes. The winning side. God wants you to recognize the victor of the ages. And I'm telling you right now, it's Jesus. And, and that's what scripture teaches. I'm giving away what you already know. And we can recognize the victor of the ages by making these choices. And the first one is this. In order to recognize the victor of the ages, you must realize the futile rebellion of man. So let's read those first three verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so the psalmist, David, opens up this psalm and he asks this question. And see this, the, the, the symmetry there, the synonymous parallelism. Why do the nations rage? And then he's going to ask it in a little different way. And the peoples plot in vain. And he's making this comparison. And he's, 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 he's making this statement that the peoples are plotting really a vain and worthless thing. They're trying to rebel against God. And really, if you look at it, this is very true. And you see it throughout human history. God says one thing, and mankind does the other. We see it as early as the fall. God said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve ate of the tree. We see it in many ways to value life, and they don't value life. We see it in regards to uh, even sexuality and the perversions that have come with this. God intended a good thing for a man and woman in marriage for life. And yet mankind has sought every way to pervert that throughout history. We're not the first, first time in history to struggle with these things. Mankind is made up of rebels. And it's God versus man, created 
creator versus creation and uh, infinite versus the finite, all powerful versus the weak, all knowing versus ignorance, all wise versus foolishness. And the psalmist points out there in verse one, this is in vain. Mankind is rebelling against the one who created them. Verse two, the kings of the earth set themselves. So now they're taking the leaders, the elite, the, the, the rulers of those that are, are of mankind, the representatives. And the, it's saying that they've taken counsel together and, and the idea they're against the Lord and against his anointed. And, and there it says, set themselves. And these are really battle terms. They have actually, in a sense, set up battle. They have rebelled and shook their fist at God and they're planning how to defeat him. And you say, well, you know, is that really true? And I would argue that this is actually very much true. And it's very uh, much, I would even argue, a demonic uh, perspective and goal. Now, does that mean that everybody that's a part of this has, has really sat down and thought, how can we rebel against God? But it's actually part of their very nature. And I would argue that this is even demonic. It's of the devil, of Satan. Where there's this plan to just rebel against all that God has made and done and decreed. And they say in verse 3, let us burst their ponds apart. They think of God and his way that he's created things, his rules, his word even. They see it all as bonds and cords holding them down, tying them down. That's the way they view this. They have a, a few, and futile, they, they're questioning God. They're now setting up battle. And they have this desire to see God's rule over. I want to take you to a place in the New Testament to help you see how Luke and the other writers of the New Testament saw this psalm fulfilled, because this is repeated again and again. Acts 4.26. We're just going to look at a few quick verses. Please turn with me quickly. As, and if, if you just want to listen, that's fine too. Acts 4.26. We'll actually read a little bit wider than that. Verse 23, this is talking about um, um, John and uh, Peter being released. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Verse 24, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, so now they're going to pray. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. So now we know it was written by David. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They're attributing the way that they treated Jesus. They're, they're actually imprisoning him and then um, crucifying him. All that took place there actually to a fulfillment, and I would say it's a partial fulfillment because it's ongoing, how they're raging and going against God. God sent his Messiah, and they're fighting against him. For truly in this city, verse 27, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Notice he's mentioning rulers here, right? Back to Psalm 2 to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So God is even in control over this. Remember that Jesus was sent to be that lamb of God, that Passover lamb. And 
Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through your name of your holy servant, Jesus. If you jumped over to Matthew chapter 26, we see when this was taking place. So Luke has already attributed the fulfillment of this psalm, or at least the partial fulfillment, He's, he's connecting it with Jesus. He's even connecting it to the fact that they crucified Jesus. Remember back in 26, Matthew 26, this is before they crucified Jesus. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. They said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So you, you see these rulers of the Jews were actually doing what we see in Psalm 2. They're plotting. They're, they're, they're trying to figure out how to defeat this Jesus. 27.1, we see it again. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. A fulfillment of this. We go over to Acts chapter 4, and that's where we just were a moment ago. But at the beginning of that chapter, 4, 5, and 6, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. All these rulers, these leaders are leading a charge against the Messiah. But notice what happens, Acts chapter 5. I just want to read this to you. I think this shows how futile this is. They think they're winning. They think they've won. They've, they've crucified him. He's on the cross. They've plotted against him. And yet, no matter what they do, God comes through and there's victory. But, but listen to this, chapter 5, 21. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came, those who were with him, they called together the council, all the center of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. So these were, uh, the apostles were, were in prison. They're sent to the temple by the Holy Spirit. They go there and teach. So they broke out of prison. They're teaching the things of God. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. So here they killed Jesus, thinking that it would disperse the movement. Their followers are now preaching the gospel strongly. They put them in prison, going to put them on trial the next day. Instead, they break out of prison, in a sense, the, the God did it. They're in the temple still teaching, and here they call them for trial, and they're not there. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what, the, what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And then he's going to strengthen them, or sorry, question them. Verse 28, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us which is reasonable. And uh, Peter and the apostles answer in verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And you can keep going. It, it gets even more picturesque, but uh, for sake of time, we should jump back to Psalm 2. The point is this. It is vanity. It is vain to rebel and go against our God. And 
may I even narrow it? It's vain to rebel against his son, Jesus Christ. And yet that's what we are. We are rebels. Think about the way that the world responds to the word of God. Uh, the most um, uh, bought book in all of history, even in every age, uh, truly changes lives. Uh, most impacting book, uh, most attested book. Um, and yet people still respond to the word of God, uh, rejecting it, rejecting its truths. Think about morality, which is taught in scriptures, the true morality. And our world thinks there is no morality or they have a perverse form of morality. They'll start to value certain things and then not value other things that God, and we could go into all sorts of specifics. God's rules, I think of in regards to marriage, as I already mentioned. You think of atheism, the belief there is no God, secular humanism putting man up really in God's place, all the false religions, all these are rebellious actions towards the God who made us and created us. But when we look at the world, we need to really remember that that seed of rebellion that you see around us actually is in our hearts too. We are part of the people. We are part of the problem. Scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Same chapter earlier on, Romans 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. And Scripture condemns us again and again. And we look out at the world, and I'm not saying we shouldn't, but we're alarmed and we're frustrated, and we certainly should be. But understand, that rebel spirit is not just out there, it's in here. Last night I was uh, with my in-laws, and they have a propane stove. And I have a little girl, and she is nine months, Genevieve. And she is adorable, so cute, and so gentle, so... um so feminine. She started to reach underneath that propane stove. It wasn't running, but there were wires underneath there. And we always like to kind of warn them anyways, because it will be running sooner or later. And I said, no, Jenna. And she heard me right away. Turned around. She kind of smiled a little bit, looked at me. And I know that parent trick. Just kind of look away and keep them in the corner of your eye. We're going to see how she's going to act. And certainly it didn't take very long. She thought, Daddy's not looking. She started to reach underneath. And she's so cute. Jenna, no. And it happened a few times. And thankfully this time she uh, she didn't keep doing it. And it's cute in some sense when we interact with our children. But it's also extremely revealing because even in a little child, you can see it. 
And especially if you analyze your own life and your own heart, you see it. We are rebels by nature. And this psalm makes this point at the very beginning. Mankind has shaken their fist at God again and again and again. And it's vain. It's futile. It's pointless. The will of God, the, the sovereignty of God is like a great river going towards this ultimate end. And you can try to swim against current as much as you want to a degree. Sooner or later, everybody's going downstream to God's ultimate end and what he has in store. And that's a wonderful thing if you're not fighting it. And uh, we see that this is in our own hearts. We are conceived as rebels. Even Christians can be rebels. And it's interesting that the world sees God's rules and ways as, as, as cords and bonds. How do you view them? Do you give them a different picture of God? Actually, that God's will is a good thing? That he's made those rules and bonds and ways of life is actually as something to protect us and to bless us? God is actually good? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Who trusts, you know what? God knows what he's talking about. I'm going to follow what he says. They often see God as an unloving dictator. Is that the way you show off God? Is there an excitement on Sunday morning? Wow, I get to go worship the Lord or oh, I have to go to church again. How do you see God's rule in your life? And we should model before our, our friends, our our loved ones, our neighbors, our co-workers, that God is good. And his good rule is worthy of following. It's a life of willful submission to that rule. And it's a beautiful thing. That's the first part. We need to recognize that we are rebels. We are rebels. And we need a savior. Now we see these next two parts, and I'm going to combine them. Because again, I think they come to a point, that spear point. Notice what it says in verse four. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. And here I believe is some of those anthropomorphisms where you use human traits to describe God. And the idea is this, that it is so futile for mankind to rebel against the one who actually created them. And it's, it is laughable. It's ridiculous. This is not a, a cruel laugh. This is not a sinful laugh. But this is God's response. Look, what are you doing? Here, this good God has created you, desires what's best for you, wants what's best, and has planned it that way, and you rebel against him again and again. It's futile. And he uses these anthropomorphisms. Other places in the scriptures speak of this as well. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, and this is the point, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And if I were to sum up these verses here, I want to stop here and make this point. It's this, that we need to receive the victor of the ages. The first is realizing that we are rebels, but here it's receiving God's appointed king the victor of the ages, Jesus. 
And he says it right here. As for me, I have set up my king on Zion, my holy hill. And it's Jesus. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. Now the actual Messiah is going to speak. The Lord, and notice how it's all capitalized there. The Lord said to me, that's referring to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Yahweh, and I believe this is a reference to the Father, actually in, in, in the Trinity. The Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so the Father is saying, I have set up my king. He is my son. And this is the point of the spear. This is the point. God has made his king. And mankind will rebel again and again and try to go their own way. But he has set him up. And it's Jesus. And then the Messiah goes on to quote in verse 8, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. If you look at verses four through six, you really see how God installs his rightful king. And then in verses seven through nine, how he gives them the nations. And the nations is being used to refer to all of creation. This idea that God sets up his king, King Jesus, and then he gives them everything, all of his kingdom. Notice what it says there in verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, Certainly God is angry. Uh, perhaps you remember that certain voice that your father had when he would speak and you knew, Oops, I crossed the line. Sometimes it wasn't even a word spoken. It was just a... And all of a sudden, all goes quiet. And here it's being communicated that God truly is angry at this. And we believe in a loving God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But understand this. When, when Jesus came the first time, they were expecting a ruler to come, a king, a warrior. Instead, this humble servant came and he died on the cross for our sins. And he showed us love. But they weren't wrong in seeing that Jesus actually would be a warrior and, and, and a great judge even. You look at the Bible and it's very clear that this same loving God is also a just God who punishes sin. And because of that, we need a Savior, and he sent the salvation. But when you reject his son, you reject his salvation. That's why Jesus came. He died on the cross for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, according to the Scriptures, he was buried, and then he rose from the dead, according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's how you receive the king. He set his king up. But there's a truth, and you see it in Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. Notice the connection back to Psalm 2. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains 
calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? They're speaking of this wrath. And as Revelation goes on, as we're going to see even in a little bit, there's a direct connection that this king that is portrayed in Psalm 2 is the king that's coming in Revelation and his wrath is coming. Verse 7 says, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The, the decree here is that the Messiah is the son. And of course, that's portrayed in the New Testament. Jesus, the son of God. Verse 8, Yahweh will give the nations as his heritage and the ends of the earth as his possession. Christ will rule over it and will all belong to him. Remember, I uh, I spoke on the Great Commission uh, not too long ago with you. And at the beginning of the Great Commission, he says, all, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. And truly, that's what happened at the death, burial, and then resurrection. And God has now, in a sense, coronated his son, Jesus. And yes, he's ascended to heaven, but he is King Jesus. And all authority has been given to him. And he will come and rule uh, the world. Please turn with me to Revelation chapter uh, 19. Notice what it says, or if you just think back with me in verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 1911, a prophecy towards the end. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And who is that? John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him. Without him was nothing made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 14, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Again, a tie back to Psalm 2. This is Jesus. And we need to receive him as king. And of course, it starts at salvation. Salvation is when we choose uh, to believe that Jesus is the one who died on the cross for our sins and uh, rose from the dead. Uh in Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul cries out, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's trusting that Jesus is the one who died for you and rose from the dead, that he's that Passover lamb. But also, receiving him as king means that you're allowing him to be Lord of your life, that you would live for him and serve him. 
It's it's realizing that he's already taken that authority. It gives us boldness as we serve God, as we understand um, that he is the victor. It gives us confidence when we're persecuted, when when uh, things don't seem to be going right. When we look at the headlines and it looks all bad, we have confidence because we have received the fact that Jesus is king. He's ruling and he's the victor and the one who will win. Judgment day is certainly coming. Jesus is coming. He's a loving savior, but he's coming as a conquering king. And then at the very end, 10, 11, and 12, we have the last three verses, the final point. In order to recognize the victor of the ages, you must revere the king. So first we realize that we are rebels and that mankind is rebels, and that rebellion is futile. Second, we receive that he is our king, the king. And third, we revere that king. Verse 10, it says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This idea of being wise is he's trying to encourage the nations. Notice what he says, O kings and rulers. These are the representative of the nations. Really all people to stop and consider and think. Be wise. Be warned. And why would they need to be warned? Because of what was just said. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This idea, this picturesque idea that God is coming to judge. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Be warned. Consider these things. And then he tells them some very pointed actions. Serve the Lord. Serve Yahweh. Serve God with fear. It's interesting to see how often fear is used in the scriptures. And uh, it's a fear, I, I think, an awe, a respectful fear. It's a, it's, a, it's a realizing who God is. If he created the waterfalls, if he created hurricanes, if he created uh, all these things uh, in the sense that all the power that exists in the earth, then certainly he must be extremely powerful. And when you recognize this and you consider this Lord, the, the, the rightful response is an awful fear in a sense of awe-filled fear, this respect of God. And the response then is rejoice, the joy, also trembling. And these two ideas mixing together, there is this reverence for God, but also this joy. Understanding that that God who created all things loved you so much to send his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for you. And now you have a relationship with God. That God who is over all things is now connected to you through his son. What a beautiful thing there is. There's, there's fear there as well as trembling. And then he makes this challenge in verse 12. Kiss the son. This is the idea of paying homage. Uh, to respect to a king. A reverence, and it's recognizing you're king, you're the ruler. It says, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But then it 
leaves with this positive, positive note. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You will not be disappointed. And really, this is a picture of what has taken place. Mankind has rebelled. God has set up his king, King Jesus. He's going to come and he's going to reign. And those that rebel against him will receive judgment. But those that take refuge in him, they will be blessed. How should we reverence God? Well, reverence can be displayed in prayer, in our response to God's word. Do we listen to it? Do we obey even the way we hear it? In our service? How do we view God and his king, Jesus? You know, in our, in our, in our songs? How should this idea of revering and understanding and accepting who Jesus is, how should it change our, our service and rejoice? Well, there should be an, an eternal or a rejoicing in, in our service. Uh, it should be an eternal optimism that should surround all that we do. Not a smugness, but actual confidence in the fact that Jesus is the victor of the ages. We can kiss the Son by loving and adoring the Son of God, longing for his return. This final promise of blessed are those who take refuge in him is such an encouragement because no matter how your life is going, whatever happens, you're in the care of Jesus, the victor of the ages. I challenge you, if you are discouraged read psalm 2 jesus is the king he is the one who will rule he is ruling and will rule and we're on his side i challenge you if you do not know jesus as your savior to put your faith in him to accept that he is the one who died for you and rose from the dead and to follow him with all your heart let's pray dear gracious father we thank you for psalm 2 its beauty its depth Thank you for setting your king up, Jesus. We thank you for his coming, his, his sacrifice, coming as a baby, living a humble life, dying such a humble death in our place. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. Help us, Lord, to live lives of, of devotion to him. Help us to understand that he is the victor. And even though things look dark and grim at times, that we can trust that he is going to return and he will win. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.